Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. With us today, we have Dr. Steve Fleisler. He's a SUNY Distinguished Professor at the University of Buffalo and a research career scientist at the VA in Buffalo, New York. He's also an endowed chair of ophthalmology and a vice chair slash director of research in the Department of Ophthalmology. So welcome to the Vets First podcast, Steve. Really appreciate you coming here. Great to be here. Thanks for the very kind invitation. Yeah, so Steve, um, you have the longest CV I've ever seen. It's quite impressive. Uh, uh, you know, one thing we really like to start with here is, is where'd you come from? And how did you get interested in your research? Like, you know, where did, where did you grow up at? So I was born in Albany, New York, and uh, my parents moved us downstate to Yonkers and then to Eastchester, New York. And I went to elementary school and uh, early uh, stages of my uh, uh, educational experience until I was 15. And then my dad got a really good job opportunity out in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we moved uh, when I was in the 10th grade to San Mateo, California, and I went to high school there. And then I stayed in California. I went to a junior college for uh, two years, the College of San Mateo. And then I uh, transferred down to the University of California in San Diego, where I was a chemistry major. And I did my junior year there. And then I got interested more in biochemistry and the one of the preeminent departments of biochemistry in the entire world is at UC Berkeley. So I transferred up my senior year to Berkeley, finished my uh, bachelor's of, of arts there. And uh, then I got a, uh, an offer to go to Rice University in Houston, Texas uh, in the department of biochemistry. At that time, this was in the early 70s, uh, they had just started a biochemistry department there and they were offering uh, full graduate scholarships, uh, including a, a living stipend. And this was during a time during the Vietnam War era where there were a lot of graduate programs uh, closing down, a lot of the uh, uh, graduate uh, support mechanisms through the federal government were uh, dwindling. And uh, so I needed a, a place where I was going to be able to afford to live someplace and go to graduate school at the same time. Yeah, very, very nice. So uh, I got a full ride and I, I got a PhD in biochemistry at Rice University, which is a very fine uh, private uh, institution. And during the time I was in graduate school, um, I was taking a, a graduate level neurobiology course. And the, uh, the professor at the time uh, was uh, going over all of the sensory mo modalities, vision and hearing and touch and smell. And he said, you know, you're a, you're a chemist. Um, we need to uh, have somebody give us a lecture on the chemistry of vision. And I said, I, I don't know anything about that. He said, oh, good, you have two weeks to learn. Uh, and so <laughs> I, uh, no pressure. <laughs> I just read everything I could and, um, and I gave this, this lecture, uh, which actually came out pretty well. Um, and it turned out 
in the course of studying, I found out that just basically across the street at the Texas Medical Center at Baylor College of Medicine, there was one of the top three or four departments of ophthalmology with a, a world-class uh, vision research group. And so I started going over there, talking to the uh, faculty over there, and they said, hey, you know, when you finish your PhD, why don't you come over and do a postdoctoral fellowship here? So I said, great, you know, I, I didn't have anything else lined up. And so I got a fellowship and I went over to Baylor. That was a really good move. And how, I, how old were you at the time? So at the time, I would have been about 26, yeah. 27, maybe. All right, yeah. And uh, so I did a, a postdoctoral fellowship there for three years. And um, they said, why don't you write your own grant application? If you get funded, we'll give you a research instructor faculty level. So I got funded on the first shot, and um, which was one of the only times that ever happened <laughs> the rest of my life. Uh, but I got a, a, a NIH grant as an independent investigator, and I became a research instructor at, at Baylor at what was called the Cullen Eye Institute, which is still there today. Um, and then uh, while I was working there, I was working with uh, two really outstanding uh, vision scientists. Um, and uh, they were my mentors uh, for the early phase of my career. And then uh, an opportunity came at Bascom Palmer Eye Institute at the University of Florida, which is the number one ophthalmology department in the United States. And it still is, and it has been for, I don't know, three decades. So I, I got a, an offer to join the faculty as a tenure track assistant professor and a really nice startup package. And I, I moved to Miami and uh, it was fantastic, but it was during that time, this was in the uh, uh, early and mid eighties, that there was a lot of uh, drug related crime going on in, in Miami. Mm -hmm. There was a television show at the time called Miami Vice. And yeah, I've seen that. <laughs> my, my relatives would call and say, so is that what it's like living in Miami? <laughs> and I said, well, depending on where you are, yes. So um, anyway, it, it, it became um, a, a kind of a tenuous place to live. And I was at a meeting uh, over in Spain, actually, in 1984, that I, I met up with a couple of guys from the University of Southern California at this conference, and I, gave, I was giving a research talk there. And after my talk, they, uh, they said, hey, you want to go get some drinks and have some dinner? I said, great. So uh, during dinner, they said, um, how would you like to move to St. Louis? There's an eye institute there, and we're just starting uh, up a, a, a vigorous research program there. And this uh, one of the guys from uh, the University of Southern California was moving there as the director of research. And I said, well, I don't know. It's kind of far away from the water. <laughs> and uh, uh, he said, yeah, just come up and just take a look at the, the job, okay? So I said, all right, I got nothing to lose. So flew up there, I spent the weekend, had a really good time, I really liked the town. I uh, came back to, I told my wife that, hey, I got this job offer to go to St. Louis. And uh, she said, where exactly is that? That's how far inland is that? We get that <laughs> so, response a lot. Oh yeah, being in Iowa. So uh, I ended up uh, taking that job offer now, I'd only been an assistant professor at the time for three years. And as you guys know, it usually takes a good six years to get up the ladder to the next rung. 
as an associate professor and tenured. Well, part of the, the move was I was promoted to an associate professor after three years. And two years later, uh, because there was a residency uh, requirement at St. Louis University, um, I was uh, tenured. And then just a few years later, I became a full professor in 1994. And I have been you know, that wrong for the rest of my life. Uh, so I spent 20 years in, uh, in St. Louis and I was doing vision research and carrying out uh, uh, grant funded research. In fact, my research program has been continuously funded uh, since ever since I was an assistant professor. That's pretty impressive. So how did you, when did you um, make the move to Buffalo and how did you become involved with veterans research? So that's another, so everything that I've told you has been serendipity, right? So yeah. I, I never looked for a job. I never looked for a position. And there's people just came out of the woodworks and said, why don't you join us? I said, fine, okay. So the same thing happened. I was at a big eye research meeting, uh, the Arvo meeting, you, you guys may know about this. And um, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who happens to be on the faculty here at the uh, University of Buffalo. And I was talking to him at his poster and he said, you know, um, we just got money for an endowed chair professorship. Would you be interested in uh, interviewing for that? I said, no, I'm pretty happy in St. Louis and I'm already a full professor. And, you know, I have a really good lab, everything's good. So why don't you just take a look? Okay, just kind of like the St. Louis thing. It seems went, to be a theme with you. <laughs> yes, so I said, well, I got nothing to lose, right? So, uh, uh, you know, I told my wife I was going for an interview. She said, Buffalo, where's that? <laughs> I said, well, just one spot on the continental U.S. you haven't been to yet. She said, how close is that to New York City? I said, not very. Uh, about a seven hour drive clear on the other side of the state. Um, so uh, I came in an interview. I had a really good uh, experience. And, and on the spot, they offered me the job. And they hadn't even interviewed anybody else. And I, I said to the department chair, don't you at least want to interview somebody else? He goes, no, nope, you're, you're, you're exactly what I'm looking for. I said, listen, before I married my wife, I, I actually dated several women. And, <laughs> and then I decided on her and I, I married her. By the way, the, the car that I'm driving, I test drove a whole bunch of cars before I bought that car. Really, don't you want to look at somebody else? I said, no, I, I don't. Uh, and he said, you know, he was driving me to the airport to go home. And he said, what's it going to take to get you here? I said, well, the first thing it's going to take is for my wife to agree to move to Buffalo, New York. <laughs> so uh, we had a conversation that worked out. I got a very good startup package. I came here in 2008 and I've been here ever since. So it's 14 years uh, this summer. Then the VA thing was also very serendipitous because several of the researchers in the ophthalmology department have laboratories at the VA. So I came over and I, I looked at the VA and I said, you know, this would be great if we could all be, you know, together and, you know, right down the hall from each other. And we're not even paying rent here. It's a pretty sweet deal at the VA. Uh, also, uh, the associate chief of staff said, you know, you would be eligible to get a merit grant and you could get a, a salary line on top of your university line. And I went, well, that's unbelievably sweet. So I said, what do I have to do? So he told me and I applied and 
I, I got my merit grant after the second try. So uh, that's how I came here. Uh, and uh, it's worked out really nicely. But how did I get into blast research? I wasn't doing anything like that in my prior career. So, you know, they made it very clear if you're going to work at the VA, you have to do something that's relevant to the VA population. Okay. And so I was looking at the literature and I said, you know, we just don't really know a lot about what happens after a primary blast explosion that goes off that soldiers get knocked over and unconscious. And when they come to their ears are ringing, they got a really bad headache, they got a concussion. And if they're fortunate enough to not have a penetrating injury, and they have a, a, you know, their eyes are intact. It's called a primary a blast exposure. Yeah. They don't uh, exhibit any um, overt immediate symptoms. Um, and what the really weird thing is, weeks, maybe months later, they start co complaining of double vision, of uh, visual, other kinds of acuity problems, even color hue discrimination, contrast sensitivity differences. And uh, when they go to their VA hospital, let's say after the discharge, um, uh, the, the, the doc will look out the field notes and will just say, well, it says here, you know, you could count fingers and you didn't have any overt signs, you didn't have hemorrhaging and you didn't have any retinal tears and everything looks good and you didn't have a cataract. Um, we think your visual problems uh, is in your brain, okay? Because obviously you got a really bad concussion and that could be, but I had the suspicion that there was something going on in the front end of the system, the camera, basically the eyes, right? Mm -hmm. So again, serendipity. I saw a seminar announced on traumatic brain injury. And there was a guy in the department of uh, neurosurgery here, David Polson, who was giving this talk. So I, I sat in on that talk and I was, uh, you know, watching his stuff and it was, he had a really good uh, rodent model, a rat model for mild traumatic brain injury, TBI. And he said, you know, these guys have a cognitive deficit. I said, how do you, how do you measure that? Oh, we use this thing called the water maze. And we, we train rats to swim uh, uh, to an exit and the other part of, of the uh, maze is blocked off and they have to learn where the exit is or they learn to swim to a platform that they can rest and not have to tread water. Yeah. I said, well, you know, all of those tests are visually guided behavior. If you blindfolded those rats, they'd never learn that. Okay. So I said, have you ever looked at what happens to the rats that you induced a TBI in as far as their eyes. And he said, no, I, we, we don't even know how to do that. I said, you're in luck. I happen to know how to do that. Okay. So I said, listen, next time you do some animals, give me a couple of the uh, eyes from the animals after you sacrifice them and we'll fix them and we'll section them. And we will look at their histology, their morphology of what the retina looks like, and also do some immunohistochemical stains that we can detect things that are upregulated in response to trauma. Mm -hmm. One of these molecules is called GFAP, glial fibrillary acidic protein. And normally in the retina, the expression of this protein is very, very uh, low levels and only localized to 
the interface between the neural retina and the vitreous. But when you have a, uh, a trauma or a retinal degeneration that's going on uh, in, in an animal or even in a, uh, a human, uh, what happens is this GFAP molecule gets dramatically upregulated and you see this huge labeling pattern in the neural retina. And it's, it's a signature, it's the canary in the mine shaft that there's something wrong in the neuronal environment, even though this molecule is not synthesized in the neurons in the retina, it's synthesized by the glial support cells, the Mueller cells, for instance, as well as the astrocytes. So when I looked at a few eyes from, from uh, uh, animals that had a mild TBI and compared them to animals that were not uh, uh, traumatically uh, injured, uh, I saw a dramatic upregulation in GFAP in the retina. And I told this to Dr. Paulson. I said, I'm telling you, there's something going on. But I said, how do you, do, how do you induce this TBI? Well, he does it through a direct cortical uh, impact called a lateral fluid percussion or LFP yeah. mono, okay? Yeah. And th this uses a, a, a fluid-driven uh, stainless steel piston that just impacts a, the open uh, uh, skull directly on the cortex, just one hemisphere, and that's it. He gets a, a one uh, uh, impact or maybe repetitive impacts, and then it's a miraculous, you just glue the, the cranium back on and uh, the animals survive. They probably have a headache, but they go about their lives and, and whatever. So, uh, you know, he tests them. And then at the end of the experiment and he uh, humanely uh, euthanizes the animals, mm -hmm. um, I got the, the uh, eyes. And sure enough, these animals, when they receive a direct impact to their brain, not to their eyes, okay, show this massive upregulation of GFAP. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think one thing, uh, if we take a step back just for one second, when, when you describe they're using rats to study TBI and rat eyes to study TBI, what's the important of, importance of using animal models to study these sorts of injuries? Um, you know, we've had questions from veterans, and I think legitimately so, why do we look at animals when we're dealing with humans? Yeah, so that's a very good question. So the kinds of things that we, the tools that we need to assess the molecular changes in the eye, uh, you can't do with a human being, okay? Because you have, you're not going to live or live well if we took your eyes out to do yeah, an experiment. So, um, we need to use a, a, an experimental animal that is um, uh, easily obtainable, uh, that is uh, able to be maintained in the laboratory environment, is uh, reasonably priced as well, um, and also that has anatomical features that are similar enough to the human that they mimic uh, the fundamental biology that is shared by all vertebrates, okay? Now, some people do um, uh, experiments with primates, okay? Well, yeah. primates are very expensive. Um, it, uh, there are a lot of uh, restrictions on using primates. Um, and also, uh, they are generally not congenic, which means that they're not the same lineage with the same background genetics 
just like you're different than Brandon, for instance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the, the beauty of using with rodent models is that you can get genetically identical animals and breed them over and over and the, they will maintain their genetics over generations. So uh, you want to reduce the number of variables in any given experiment. So if you don't have any genetic variability in the background, you're already off to a good start. Yeah. Okay? The thing is, it also has to be what, what we call tractable. In other words, usable, convenient, that you can do certain kinds of tests that will be informative to you um, that are actually reasonably easy to do, okay? So measuring their visual acuity, for instance, we can do that in a rat. You know, they don't have to be like a, a, a person where you say, how's this lens? Does this look better or worse, okay? So you can't talk to a rat, but there are ways that we can objectively measure visual acuity. We can also measure the sensitivity and uh, reactivity of the retina to uh, stimulation by light and yeah. increasing flashes of brightness of lights and different colors of lights or frequencies. Uh, so these are all electrophysiological functional uh, outcomes assessments. And we, we do those kinds of things. Those tests I do in collaboration with a wonderful uh, VA uh, collaborator at the Atlanta VA, Dr. Michelle Pardue. Um, we in my laboratory, are, uh, our expertise is uh, most um, uh, well-developed with biochemical and immunohistochemical and uh, morphological techniques. So um, after we do uh, visual assessments on the animals through a collaboration, the uh, eyes are then sent back to us, and then we do biochemical and immunohistochemical uh, and morphological assessments of the retinas and the eyes. Yeah, that's that's what I've always find fascinating about the eye and model organisms of that that have eyes like rats, mice, you know, any number, is that the eye maintains this biology across so much of evolution. It's very impressive. So, what we learn, I think. You can totally correct me if I'm wrong, but what we learn in the eye of a rat is very applicable to a human often. There are some things that aren't, but you, the biology is so similar that it's really informative for human biology and human um, disease often. That's, that's correct. So the fundamental cell biology of the retina, the, the wiring diagram, if you will, of the neurons and their connections fundamentally is the same as in a human. There are some things that are very distinct. For instance, rodents don't have a macula uh, or a, a, a foveal center that is a cone-rich region in the center of the visual, visual axis. Only humans and uh, primates have a macula uh, and a fovea. So um, they uh, have a, a somewhat different organization, however, if you're just looking at rod cells, the rod cells in rodents are very similar to the rod cells in humans. The cones, the, there are you know, three kinds of, of cones in humans and primates. And the fundamental structure of cones uh, and their visual pigment biochemistry and all of their signal transduction mechanisms are essentially the same. The fundamental 
biochemistry and cell biology of the cells of the retinas of a rat are pretty much like human, okay? So uh, we think that we can model certain things in rodent animal, uh, animals and um, they will be informative uh, for what's going on in humans, okay? So uh, telling you this, the story further about how did I ever get into the blast injury uh, business, the first was that model TBI um, uh, lecture. The second was, again, going to a research seminar by another colleague who happens to be an expert in the um, uh, auditory system. Uh, and he is a world expert in what's called tinnitus, a, a very common uh, auditory uh, de defect uh, in humans. Um, and pretty much anybody who gets uh, exposed to a blast, a loud noise, um, or in a, even in direct uh, uh, impact to the side of the head that affects the, uh, the auditory system, they will have this ringing in their ear, okay? And they will have this tinnitus, okay? So there's millions of people in the civilian population that are affected by tinnitus, uh, but uh, our uh, deployed soldiers are very prone to having uh, tinnitus and auditory uh, uh, defects. So I went to his seminar and he was studying blast injury to the auditory system. And he was using a, uh, a model blast generator, which was actually built from parts that you can buy at Home Depot. And uh, uh, a really talented uh, engineer in the mechanical engineering department at the University of Buffalo designed and built this blast generator. And it uh, basically fills up in, with a, a column of air to a given pressure. And there's a hunting arrow that is mounted inside a PVC pipe that is driven by a solenoid at will. If you uh, activate it, it will drive the hunter, hunting arrow forward and that what we'll do uh, there will pierce a film, a metal, metal film that is covering the mouth of the tube. And there's that back pressure of that building up behind that piece of, of, of metal film. When that arrow punctures that film, it releases this blast of air and it releases a sound wave, okay? And uh, the sound wave can be incredibly loud. Um, the one that we typically use is 190 to 195 decibel. So you know, it doesn't surprise me. We, we had an overpressure chamber that we worked with for years and it was super loud. Oh man, we had to, you know, we have to wear hearing protection while we used it. Mm -hmm. So we, I had to build, well, have built a sound enclosure, a uh, uh, soundproof acoustic chamber. So this device is mounted on a table. Our, the animals are deeply anesthetized. They don't have no pain sensation whatsoever. Um, and they are in this freestanding room that's within a room and we're outside uh, uh, monitoring this. And uh, uh, then the, the explosion goes off, the, the blast goes off and then we recover the animals and then um, we, we will then allow them to recover and they wake up and they're fine. And you know, animals that are 
severely injured. They won't eat, they won't eat, uh, they won't eat or a drink rather. Uh, they won't move around the cage. They'll be lethargic. Our animals eat, drink, walk around. They probably have a headache initially. We give them, by the way, uh, analgesics uh, mm -hmm. to reduce to minimize those headaches. Um, and we use topical anesthesia so that the, they don't have any surface effects of, of pain um, uh, from the blast wave. But uh, the eyes are intact. The animal is intact. And then days to weeks, even months later, we do visual assessments on these animals. And then we do biochemical and cell biological assessments on these animals. So going back to this, this seminar, uh, this, this uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Salvi at the University of Buffalo, he again was doing uh, uh, cognitive testing on these animals. And I asked him, do, do you assess the vision? He said, no, we, we take out the uh, ears, uh, inner ear workings and the brains, okay? But we generally throw the rest of the animal away, including the eyes. I said, well, Next time you do this experiment, would you please give me some eyes and I'll take a look at them. Just give me those and, eyes. <laughs> and, sure, and sure enough, just like with the TBI experiment, we saw this GFAP molecule just humongously upregulated. Okay? Upregulated. So then I, I said, all right, listen, we have got to collaborate on this. But I said, I, I have to do the experiments at the VA. So I, I, I can't be using your device. So I, I, I had a, the identical instrument built. And so you went to Home Depot. <laughs> so we, yeah, so uh, that's, that really launched my career. He and I both wrote a VA merit grant uh, on polytrauma. And that was the first uh, grant that uh, I got funded through the VA system. And I, I still have that grant uh, today. Wow. That's so awesome. where do you, oh, that's... Wow, that's a lot, and that's awesome, Steve. So, where do you see your where do you see your research going now? So, you know, the the first part of the research was trying to just to figure out the fundamental mechanisms of how is the retina reacting to having a primary blast because it doesn't do anything directly physical. There's nothing that you can see that happens to the eye. Okay, they looked perfectly normal after this blast exposure, but they're not normal. Okay, so because these animals start to have visual deficits and they also have these um, sequelae, these after uh, effects that are uh, measured at the molecular level, we said, well, you know what we really need is to figure out a way to dampen those sequelae to reduce the visual deficits that are caused by blast injury. So what, what would you do, okay? Well, you would have to know what is causing the, the visual deficits to begin with. That's why we had to know what are the pathways that are affected, okay? And what we came up with, um, and other people have been studying this by the way, I'm not the only person in the world doing this, but one of the, the mechanisms that uh, seemed to be jumping out at us was oxidative stress. And there are a lot of uh, uh, hereditary retinal degenerations as well as traumatic retinal degenerations that involve oxidative stress or the release of free radicals, okay? So we thought, well, maybe we'll just give them antioxidants, okay? Just like for instance, P3 
people who are in the early stages of their uh, disease of age-related macular degeneration, they take a mixture of antioxidants, water-soluble and fat-soluble antioxidants, like vitamin C and vitamin E and vitamin K. These kinds of uh, naturally occurring uh, FDA-approved uh, uh, antioxidants that happen to be vitamins, we take them every day in, in our multivitamins, okay? But you need really mega doses of these to be uh, effective enough to be protective or reduce the progression is what they do, in, at least in people having age-related macular degeneration. So we said, well, why don't we just give these guys some vitamin C and some vitamin E and maybe some selenium because selenium is the cofactor for some detoxifying enzymes like glutathione peroxidase. So we, we said, okay, let's just check that out. Well, that, that approach didn't really pan out. And uh, you know it was very attractive because we wouldn't have to go through FDA approval. People are already taking this stuff anyway, right? Well, then I, I heard uh, this guy give a talk and uh, he was a medicinal chemist, uh, Peter Cater at the University of uh, Nebraska. And he was uh, developing a whole series, a new family of very, very potent uh, antioxidants that are, are what are called bifunctional reagents, which means they do two things, okay? The two things that they do is one end of the molecule traps uh, and sequesters free radicals or annihilates them, it's called, okay? The other end of the molecule chelates iron. And iron is responsible for non-enzymatic, just pure chemistry-driven generation of free radicals, okay? So you tie up the iron and you quench any of the free radicals that are floating around and you get a, a twofer, a double whammy, very, very potent antioxidant. Now these things are, um, they have kind of a very unusual chemistry and they're not easy to make and they're not cheap to make, unlike you know, getting vitamin C for instance. Um, so we had to collaborate with, with him to do this and these are proprietary compounds. Mm -hmm. uh, so the idea was we would put these proprietary antioxidants into the diet of the rats that we're treating and some of the animals will get the antioxidants and some of the animals won't. And then we'll expose the animals to blast injury and then ask, do we get a better visual outcomes or reduce the molecular signatures of damage uh, in the animals treated with the antioxidants? And so the answer, the, the long and short of it is the original, the initial uh, research that we uh, uh, did, it looked like it might work. But after doing a lot more animals, we don't have a compelling, statistically significant outcome that shows that the visual function is improved at all. What we do see is that we can get the dampening down of some of the signatures of oxidative stress and uh, molecular uh, reactivity of uh, the, the neurons and the glia in the, in the retina. So we, we, we think that the idea still has merit. We think it needs to be refined. Um, and we're working on now um, a, another class of molecules 
that uh, again is a pharmacological compound. This one is FDA approved. Uh, that is a inhibitor of one of the enzyme that generates free, free radicals in every cell in your body. And the, this class of molecules has some very um, uh, promising uh, clinical uh, signs as they might be the kind of molecule that we need to be looking at for our blast injury model. So that's where my research on blast injury is now heading. Um, and uh, we're very hopeful because, you know, before I retire, I would like to, when I go out the door, know that I did something that actually is going to improve veterans' health. Yeah. And there's, I see some of these, especially these young guys that are coming in from the war in Afghanistan, um, and they are, you know, very damaged. And if there was, if there was something that I could have the Department of Defense distributed to every deployed soldier that they just put in their diet, just like, you know, just take a pill at, at breakfast and they go off to their field maneuvers and let's say they get uh, an IED go off, um, that the, the damage that is occurring to them is somehow significantly reduced and they don't lose their vision and they, they don't have the, the sequelae of exposure to a primary blast. The, the unfortunate people that, you know, have penetrating injuries, those things you need surgical in, intervention. No, no pill is going to help those people, okay? But the people who, and, and there's a lot of them, come out of a blast, they don't have, fortunately, no physical damage to them, but they have the tinnitus, they have the concussive injury, they have the TBI, and they also have the visual dysfunction that takes a long time to manifest, okay? Yeah, you know, that, that's been something that I've really thought about in my TBI work for a long time is, why is there such a delay there? What's causing that delay? And why would the body upregulate these sort of pathways that could injure itself? Because it's, it's probably trying to protect itself from damage, right? Like, in some way. And we know that there's like, like the neurons get sheared a little bit, especially the retinal ganglion cells that project way back into the brain. You know, they have these really long projections. So could it be that these cells are actually getting damaged in some way that we don't see? Yes, so, so the, the answer is yes. Likely there are microscopic changes that are going on that are not overt, that you can't see with the naked eye, for instance. If you have a torsional um, a scission of the optic nerve, you can see that. But if there's just rotation of the eye and the uh, twisting of the optic nerve, that will cause damage, but uh, uh, you will not see that that is a, uh, a, a break in the cable, if you will. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and in fact, there's a, uh, a researcher at uh, San Antonio, Randy Glickman, Dr. Glickman, who has been studying an animal model where they purposely torque the optic nerve and look at the impact of that um, uh, on uh, the visual system, because that kind of injury does occur in the field. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it, it's just always been very perplexing to me that it takes such a long time for some of these things to, to manifest. And, you know, one, I think really interesting topic for the field. Um, I'm part of the vision center at Iowa. And so I get to listen to all these vision 
talks all the time. And so one thing I've always wondered is like, what's the difference between someone who doesn't get any of these problems and someone who does genetically? Do you, it, it, maybe you can't speak to this, I don't know, but like, do you, do you know if there's any genetic uh, background or uh, predisposition that could lead to worse outcomes? Has the field even looked at that? The, the answer is I am unaware of it and I don't know of any publications that have come out yet on this. There, here's the thing, as a researcher, you know this, um, what's in your notebook is in your notebook. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nobody else knows what you're doing. So I, I don't want to say nobody is studying that because I, I maybe wouldn't know that. Okay. Yeah, I just don't I know either. I haven't seen publications on, and I don't think that people have done that kind of study. So there is a data resource called the Million Veterans Program. Yeah, yeah. And that is a data repository where that kind of a question could be post-facto evaluated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be a major resource moving forward for the VA-centered research community. I think it's really impressive thing that the VA so, has taken there. It's already yielding uh, incredibly interesting insights into age-related macular degeneration susceptibility, glaucoma susceptibility, um, uh, cataract uh, uh, formation, um, some of the other uh, diseases of the eye, um, uh, like Fuchs endothelial cell dystrophy, which is a corneal ab abnormality. Um, these are all being uh, studied uh, currently and a data mining of the uh, Million Veteran Programs uh, data bank uh, has been, uh, is being done uh, at Iowa, uh, yeah. in fact, and uh, uh, you have one of the world-class um, uh, neuro-ophthalmology uh, experts, Randy Carden uh, there, um, Marcus Kuhn uh, is uh, studying glaucoma and um, uh, ocular uh, injury, trauma injury. Uh, interestingly, I was on Marcus's PhD thesis committee when he was a student. At really? Oh, man. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And you probably know Rob Mullins. At, at I well. don't personally know him. I know the name for sure. So Rob, yeah. Rob studies age-related macular degeneration, and he and, and Marcus were uh, both in the same laboratory, of Greg Hageman's laboratory at St. Louis University. Greg had been uh, had moved yeah. to Iowa. Now uh, he's he's in Utah. Um, but, oh yeah, uh, Marcus Marcus worked in St. Louis for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a he was a graduate student, uh, and I uh, was PhD. Uh, so uh, thesis committee. So Steve, this is the part of the we're almost done, and uh, just like five more minutes. I just want to ask you a couple of I think fun slash introspective questions for researchers. Sure. Did you ever picture yourself having a seventy-four page CV? <laughs> <laughs> You know why? Uh, there was a there was a time that I think my parents predicted I'd be in reform school. So uh, uh, I'm I'm amazed I have a CD at all. Um, uh, I, and I, you know, the listeners, it, you know, I was not born brilliant. Okay, uh, I had a twin twin brother who actually was born brilliant, and uh, he was he was always uh, you know they called him the smart one. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, no, I, I never thought that I would 
make it this far in academia. I, I feel unbelievably lucky. I, I think I tell people I was never the smartest knife in the drawer, okay? But I've been in the right place at the right time. And I've, I've had opportunities that have appeared out of nowhere. Um, and I've just, the, the one thing is I do recognize and put and have the ability to put together seemingly unrelated facts sure. and make a story and come up with a hypothesis and pursue that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, you know, the, the, the fundamental basis, but uh, for the listeners, I'm no genius. Okay. Yeah. I'm not either, Steve. I think we we're both in that, that same drawer there. Yeah. You know, I, I, and then the other thing I really like to ask people is what do you do outside of science? What do you, what do you, what is, what do you like to do for fun? Oh yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> several, several things. Uh, so living in Buffalo, we actually have a lot of outdoor kind of things to available, uh, available to you. I mean, if you live in Buffalo, you enjoy scooping snow during the winter. <laughs> I actually love taking my dog on walks on what you might consider tundra. Uh, and uh, which I just did a couple of weeks ago and then the snow melted and we're getting more on Sunday. Um, the other thing that I, I really am enthusiastic about, I've, I've always had a, uh, an interest in wine. And oh, nice. um, uh, I, this, this started actually in graduate school um, where uh, some of my friends said, hey, why don't we form this like uh, wine club and we'll sample different wines and we'll you know, uh, study them and, and uh, learn about them. And I said, this is great. You know? and, and so I learned more and more and more. And I started collecting some wine. And so I have a pretty nice cellar. And I have a couple of friends here that I hang out with usually about a once a month. And, and we try some really good wines. And uh, uh, so nice. I'm, I'm enthusiastic about that. And um, I am a what you might consider a gourmet chef. Ooh, so nice. I, I love cooking, too. Yeah. I love cooking. It's my, it is my relaxation. I actually cook all of our... Uh, dinners at home. Um, I, I hate cleaning up, but my wife doesn't mind it. So I cook, she she cleans, and and it's a it's a good life. It's just perfect. Hey, yeah. it was, this was a blast. Thank you yeah. so much Thanks for so inviting much for me. Doing to it. Do this. Really I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing the uh, podcast when it comes out. Uh, you guys are doing a great thing. Thank you. Thanks, awesome. man. Appreciate it. Thanks, dude. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.